Sí. Don't put me off now, John. <laughs> if we're not doing it for his glory, there's no purpose in us being here. Absolutely no purpose at all. No purpose having a mission statement. It has to be for his glory. Um, you know, just to just to try and recall a few things around us, just for um, just for sort of meditation purposes. It, you, you hear things, you know, that are going on. Um, the rise of the worship idol. Um, I don't really know what it is. It's something I've heard recently in churches. The rise of the worship idol. I suppose that's taken its cue from pop idol and stuff like that. And I suppose that's quite a possibility. Um, churches, they're getting other sorts of comments and renown from the way that they, they present they, their preaching using all sorts of language, saying we're not afraid to use bad language in our churches and stuff like that because A, we're free, and because, um, well, you know, this is just the language of the day, so we'll be culturally relevant. Um, I'm not, you hear other words like, and I've heard it here too, and I'm not, I, don't, I don't find um, a connection with this in calling God Guy, the guy in the sky. Um, I don't know, you may feel comfortable with it, I don't particularly. Um, but the things, whatever we do here as a church, ultimately must be for his glory. And I think by beginning that purpose statement with living life Jesus' way would bring us to that point. Sometimes it's not always easy to, um, to understand what Jesus' way is, but we learn um, and, and, and we grow as Christians to actually know the things which glorify God. In our lives, we, we know that, in a sense, our whole being must be lived. Um, and essentially for us, the church, the community, must be here in C Street. What we do and the way we do things ultimately must be for God's glory. Now, in the end, what isn't for his glory just won't be there. It will have been actually valueless. So it's, no, it's nothing to get heavy about, but on the other hand, we don't particularly want to waste our time doing things which just for our own benefit. Now we have to, we have to be honest and we have to be um, right about this that there are lots of things we don't do for his glory because we get a personal enjoyment out of doing and we get satisfaction and that's not wrong because God wants us to share his glory. He wants us to share his joy. He wants us to share his truth. He wants us to enjoy doing it. You know, and it's all but, you know, God's glory. And I say that because there are some churches, you know, who will quite positively step aside and say, I'm doing this for God's glory. When in actual fact, that there is another underlying motive about what they're doing. And it's quite easy to get to that place. And so in our purpose statement, it's, I'm really saying this now because 
really, God, we, what we're doing here, we really want to do for your glory. We think so much about Jesus. We have seen, we've seen heaven come before our eyes. We've seen the future unfold. We've seen a delight that we can enjoy. And so we really want to get on with this and do it for his glory because it's really a delight, Lord, to be involved in it. We really want to see what's happening. And um, I began to ask myself the question, what is it with this glory? How is it understood? Um, I mean, if I said to you, give me a Bible verse that has glory in it, uh, and I'll do the first one, and maybe a couple of others will think of one that comes to mind. But um, at Christmas time, we, we read that the shepherds were abiding in the field, uh, and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they became very afraid. <laughs> What is it with glory that makes me afraid? Does that mean to say my experience of God's glory or what other people can experience about God's glory is the purpose is to bring fear? No, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's just that at that particular time, there was no particular manifestation of God in, in the communities of people, nothing to actually give them a sense of purpose and a sense of hope. And um, as we read, when we, we read about Zechariah going to, to the temple, going into the temple to do his duty, um, you know, he was doing his duty. And it was partly just that. And, and as Zechariah went in there, there was an angel. God has heard your prayer, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. And in a moment, in a moment, in a moment, you know, God had intervened and come to Zechariah. And that must have been a delightful moment. And it was similar for these shepherds. They were out there doing their duty. They were, um, you know, looking after sheep. What could be more interesting and delightful than that? Looking after a few sheep through the night. I don't know. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord, we read that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And they were very, they were very afraid. They were very afraid. So, what is it with this glory? So we focus on that at Christmas. So, what what verse might come to your mind about the glory of God? Yeah, we are all being changed from one degree of glory to another. What do you think about that? Hmm? Does that mean, say, we're getting more fearful as we become, as we grow as Christians? No. So it's got nothing to do with fear, has it? From one degree of glory to another. Well, it could mean that we're actually becoming more like Jesus day by day. Oh, that's that's the right that's the right form of our lives as we live them. You know that we actually learn more power today than I learned yet that I knew yesterday. I understand more today than I understood yesterday. I, I found the answer to something today that I didn't have yesterday. Um, it could be like that, couldn't it? We're moving on from one degree of glory to another. Maybe it's moving on to the place that God originally intended for us to come to, one degree of glory to another. But in any of these, they don't sort of seem to tie up into anything which is sort of significant for us to uh, get our teeth into. Any other verse that comes to mind? Um, 
I have given them the glory that you've given me. That's Jesus' prayer, isn't it? I have given them the glory. Talking about his disciples. Jesus is owning up to what he's done, you know, with people. And um, if we're, not, we're in church, we're owning up to what God is doing for us and Jesus is doing for us. He says, I've given them the glory that you have given me. So what did God give Jesus? What did God give Jesus that he could pass on to other people? So we could go through. It seems to be in different phases, in different places. What is this glory? So what is it with glory? I want us to um, read in our Bibles, because that would be a good place to start, in Isaiah 42. What we read and what I say now may not bear any relevance to what we've thought about already, but I'm just trying to get us in thought mode, really, to... uh, Isaiah 42. Verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope, or we could say that the uttermost parts of the earth will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. Verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And to take it in the context, it's in the context of a nation that had become idolatrous and um, we know just from the simple uh, view of this that uh, they, they, they had made images, uh, uh, things that had nothing and did nothing. Uh, and they used to gather around these and sort of worship them. And um, 
so it's in that context. So, so here, the voice, and I'm going to say there's a voiceover in these verses here. Something, a voice you can hear behind. And sometimes it's difficult to actually try and distinguish what the voice is or who the voice is. Whether it's the voice of God, whether it's the voice of Isaiah, whether it's the voice of, of just the Spirit of God, but it's almost a voice that assesses the situation at that time and that place. The voiceover, in actual fact, is the voice of justice. Because it's a cry of the heart of God, it's a cry of the people, it's a cry of the heart, and it's a cry of need. The voice of justice. And so when you say, well, is God speaking here, or is Isaiah saying in here, it is God overall. The voiceover is the voice of justice. And it's the voice, really, of understanding God, the voice of understanding man, and the voice of reason, trying to bring the two together. If we read in Hebrews, we read about the mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. One who understands the heart of God. One that understands the heart and the need of man. And you hear the cry, and the cry of justice is this, the cry of the need to reconcile God with man. That's the cry. The cry may be from God, the cry may be from man, the cry may be from the heart, it might be the cry of the nation or even the prophet as he speaks. But it's the cry of justice in the end. And Jesus' purpose is to bring forth justice. That's what we read. But it tells us how he is actually going to do this. To actually translate the righteous requirements of God and to translate the desperate need of man and put an answer to it. What is it with glory? Well, glory is about turning the heads of the earth, turning the heads of people, and I will explain. If we read in Revelation, John, before he wrote what he was told to write, he said, I heard a voice behind me, and I turned, I turned to see the voice. I turned to see the voice. Now, that's a strange saying. But he turned to see the voice. And what did he see? He saw more than the voice. But he had this wonderful vision of Jesus, if you like. Interpreted by scripture, interpreted by prophecy, and interpreted for the present need. This is the cry of justice. The cry of God's justice. The cry of justice. The heart of God crying out, for righteousness, the heart of man crying out for something to meet its need. But it was something that turned the head. Now, in life, in, in society, in, throughout the world, there are various things that turn the head of the world. The death of Princess Diana was one of them. And the media makes this very possible, doesn't it, sometimes? 
But for a moment, for a few weeks, months, years in time, the whole earth is turned to one thing. And the heads revolve. And they're now looking at something. World War One, World War Two, were two other things that, with all the wars that are in the world, they seem to have dominated the world. And that's maybe why we called them World War One and World War Two. And even right down to today, you know, the head of the world is turning and is looking at what is happening. But with these events, there's ultimately nothing in them. They are empty. And as God is, as the voice of justice is crying in these verses which we've read here, there is something that will turn the head of the world. And it's in one word, it's the first word in First Boy 2, behold. So God is saying to his church today, God was saying through his prophet here, and God is saying in his church, there must be one thing that's going to turn the head of the world, turn the head of Herne Bay, to turn people's heads here in Herne Bay, and it's going to be Jesus. It's going to be the glory, the manifestation of Jesus in your society that's going to ultimately turn the heads of the people. In um, your international, New International Version, in my NIV Bible, it says, here is my servant. But I'm sorry, the word's not strong enough. It's not, God is saying, I know it's an old-fashioned word, and there could be a better word found here to go, behold. But it is, it's God speaking. He said, world, just stop for a moment. Look this way. I want you to see something you've never seen before, and I don't want you to take your eyes off of it. And it was the servant of God. The servant of God who's here brought to us as, as Jesus prophetically, is also seen as the king. There's a wonderful thing happening in Isaiah because as a prophet, he's, he's not really understanding what's going on. But what he's saying, he's presenting Jesus to the world as king. He's also presenting him as servant. That's two wonderful characters in our world. A servant and a king. But the wonderful thing about what we have in this book is that he brings the two together and says, here's someone who can be a servant and a king at one and the same time. That's glory for a start. It's that my head now has turned to see something majestically in one man, and that's Jesus. He's king, he's servant. Yeah, we know he's Lord. But really, what God is saying here, there's someone here who can relate to the people. There's someone who can relate to my heart, my need, my situation, my circumstance today. And I think that's where we want to be as a church, isn't it? We want to declare the glory of God that has authority in one hand but has the ability to serve in the other hand. The ability to declare the glory 
of God. <coughs> what is it with this glory? It's something which turns the head. And it's also something which has an exchange. With idols and idol worship, you may spend all your time, all your energy, all your effort, the whole of your life focusing on one thing, and at the end of it, it can be empty. And we know brilliant people, brilliant, like David Attenborough is one of them. He's a brilliant person. He can devote all his energy and all his time in this life to the wonders of nature, and yet at the end of all, he can be empty. Because his head has not yet turned to see the glory of God. And God wants to turn the eyes, the hearts, the heads of people in Herm Bay. And he's not going to do it any other way other than through Jesus. Not as us becoming a big church, not any other church having particular emphasis, not in a committee or decision, but it's only going to be through Jesus. That's why we're in this statement, living life Jesus' way, by his spirit on his mission for his glory. Something which is going to turn the heads of the people. And Jesus did this when he came. Not in an extra... We're told here how he did that. We have this wonderful description of the servant. We consider the eye, there's no exchange. That's where the, those people, when Jesus was here, that's where they were with, with the religious authorities. They were condemned. They were not meeting the requirements. They weren't making it. There was no exchange. It's like it was with the idols. No exchange. David in the psalm said, Eyes they have, but they see not. Ears they have, but they hear not. There's no exchange. No exchange. The wonderful thing about knowing God through Jesus Christ is a tremendous exchange. A wonderful exchange. You know? A wonderful exchange. This is written in the background of some things that were missing. Eyes they have, but they hear not. Ears they have, but they hear not. Eyes they have, but they see not. Hands they have, but they do nothing. No exchange. And so as a church, we live out our life as Jesus wants to do it. People want an exchange, a response, a reaction, something that can, somebody who can help, somebody who can pitch in. But some things were missing. Verse 28 of the previous chapter, 41. I look. Who's looking here? It's the voice of justice. I look. But there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. What is it like to live without that? No answer. 
Alec Motier describes as the absence of a sure word. The absence of a sure word. As Beacon Church, we're thinking about ourselves. You know we need to have a sure word. Whatever we say, whatever we do. It can only be found in scripture. It can only be found by knowing Jesus Christ and glorifying him in our church. Many churches today do not have a sure word. That's why we need to be okay with the truth. We need to know what it's saying. We need to know what it's doing. I'm not quite sure where the discussion on Premier Radio got yesterday with Richard Forster um, promoting annihilation as the idea of hell. I don't know. We need to have a sure word about now. We need to have a sure word about the future. Here the cry was, I look, but there is no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false, their deeds amount to nothing, their images are but wind and confusion. And that will describe very much lots of things around us in life. As our government pursues the expenses round, there's the absence of a sure word here. Let's get rid of the lot. <laughs> They're all useless. I think that's what that's the underlying cry, but it's not the real cry. It's not the there's an absence of a sure word. You know, if Winston Churchill didn't do anything, he said he seemed to say the right thing at the right time. And look, you hear lots of things about Winston Churchill, you know, oh, he was this, this, that, he didn't do much, and he probably didn't, I don't know. But he's renowned. This was a head-turner, and eyes were focused on Winston Churchill, what he would say. They were ready to listen, because he, he, what he said had captured their attention. This is our finest hour. You know, and what he said captured the attention. And sometimes it might not have been right, but you know, he was there as a catalyst with a word, something that would actually attract the people and get them motivated. Something like a sure word, the absence of a sure word. An exchange of understanding. When Jesus came, when Jesus came, there became the true word. Jesus spoke a word which was right on cue. Every time he spoke, and in whatever context he spoke it, and there was a sure word. Take, for example, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What that must this have meant to the people? Someone speaking blessing now? Someone speaking blessing? We haven't heard that word for a long time. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Hey, God, this is different. Life was being interpreted in a different way, not with judgment so much, but with grace and truth. 
Hey, there's hope. We can now know God personally. I'm beginning to understand myself and the mess this world is in, but I can be valued. The perspective is changing my mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of God. What's like music in people's ears, you know? It's not just I'm nothing and I'm no use, I'm no value. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <coughs> Jesus had a sh- has a sure word here for the poor in spirit. So the voice is crying, here is my servant. This is God speaking definitely now. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And that takes on a wider context, doesn't it? Not only to us, but if we just look where from where we are now and see how that some nations actually are being suppressed and taken for a ride and just used as tools for the benefit of other parts of the world, you could say, here's a cry of justice for the nations. But what we do say is the nations are on his heart. The need of the world is on God's heart. And so as a church, we take on, with Maxine last week, you know, here's a need that God is interested about. The absence of a sure word. And Maxine's able to bring a sure word to many people through what she's doing. A sure word that God loves. In the current sort of healing on the streets thing, the first thing I believe that is said to a person, God really loves you. The presentation of a sure word, a word that the people need to hear. God loves you. He really does love you. He, there's no one like you, God says. You're my very own. And I should look at that in just a moment. But look here. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. God latches on to what is on his own heart here. Someone who's going to bring a sure word to the people, a sure word that understands the hearts of people. And this is where the justice comes in. God is concerned about justice. He's not just concerned about judgment. God is concerned about bringing people into his plan, his purpose, and bringing them from one degree of glory to another. The sure word of hope in the Christian gospel is found in Jesus Christ. But it's the way that he does it. I will put my spirit, he will bring justice to the nation. He will not shout or cry. So many people shout and cry out today. And what is that? It's to be noticed, to be recognised. So hear me. I have something to say. And some of our preachers shout and they bawl. And it's not, not really in, intent on bringing the heart of God, but getting in their voice to the people. And there may be right and wrong things about that, but... 
Jesus is presented here as someone who doesn't shout or cry out. Many people have fathers who shout at them from the day that they can ever give a response. This is not Jesus. When he came, he wasn't shouting at the people. He wasn't raising his own voice. He was speaking the heart of God. Has he come and said, I'm different. I'm really not like the people around here. God latches on to the true servant and holds fast that idea in his people. So God wants to hold fast to something that's weakened, that we're not just making a noise. Not about self, but we're actually representing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's not raising his voice in the street and a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. A man of compassion and a man of understanding. What is a broken reed? Something which has lost its strength at one point in its just simple exposure to life. And that can happen in many people's lives. At one point in their life, there's one thing that weakens it. Could be one thing in my life that weakens me. A bruised reed he will not break. It's not saying, okay, get on with it, you're a broken reed. No, it, he wants to see how really that, that reed can be made good for use again. What it's left with, the last little strands it's holding on to, he wants to take and use. That's not negative, that's positive. There's so much negativity in our churches. I find so much positive in our church, love and encouragement and strengthening for one another. They're going to build one another up. But occasionally, these negative thoughts get in. They come to me. And I'm sure they come to others as well. But Jesus is not looking at negative things. He's looking at positive things. He's looking, what's, what's there I can actually do something with? He won't break it. He will take it and use it. This is an aspect of the glory of Christ in what we do. A smouldering wick, he will not snuff out. A smouldering wick. That which had a light up to recently and has now gone out. Yesterday I was talking to someone who was talking about... The, he was a Christian... And, but he says, I was a backslider then. And I said, that's an old-fashioned word. The book, you know. He knew what it meant. I knew what it meant. And in the context, we knew what it meant. But it's someone who had a light as a Christian which was burning. And it had gone out. It had gone out. And the smouldering wick, he won't snuff out. What do we see in picture form here? If there's a little bit of heat in that wick, you can blow on it gently and restore the light. Let it burn again. Let it give light again. Restore to the purpose that it was intended for, figuring light, really. <laughs> you know? 
but a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. That's not the heart of our God. As very often, you know, in, the, in our characters, in our thinking, the things that we say, it's the wrong thing to say about someone, or oh, God could never use them. As a young man, I thought that in my mind, and I heard it from other people, but you see it turn right around. God blows on the wick, and it lights up, and it lights up. So what's, what's happening here? God wants to turn the head of the world. He wants to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's such a wonderful picture we have here. It's not anybody on their throne. It's not anyone really employed as a servant as such. But it's someone who's actually reenacting what's really in the heart of God. And why I say that is because the world fails to see the glory of of God like this. It fails to have the correct picture of God, that God is love. Hallelujah. God is understanding. The exchange, thought about just now. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. That's the authorised version. But you know what I mean, don't you? There's an exchange here. An exchange. Glory. Relationship. That's God. That's the exchange. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not, he will not falter or be discouraged... How many times we've faltered here at Beacon Church and been discouraged and we need to be encouraged and carry on. <coughs> you know, just as God wants us to be. It's easy to falter. It's easy to be discouraged. But Jesus carried on. He must have had so much discouragement. He was hated without a cause. He was reviled. He was rejected. His life was sought Similar to the Apostle Paul, but he carried on. He did not falter or be discouraged, but he carried on. And when we deal with people, we'll get discouraged. When we're trying to pursue a point of glory for someone, we'll get discouraged. But we've just got to keep on in with the power of God and to know that salvation is actually real. David Stroud, when he was preaching the other day on... Premier Radio in his church, and it's just a recording. He said, When God comes into our life, He makes good things ultimate things. He makes good things ultimate things. So it's not always, not always bad things that God needs. It's like relationships. We live in a world of extremely bad relationships. The world just does not know how to work out a relationship with another person sometimes, and I don't. But we can learn. It's like relationships are good, but they've become a mess. And how God takes good things and makes them ultimate things, because family is so important. Family is so important on God's heart. We're all part of a family somewhere. Some of us may not have any 
relations lift to but the other people around us in our church God wants to make good things ultimate things so our relationship we have with each other as a church he wants to make that ultimate things that's fellowship it's actually enjoying one another's company enjoying talking about the things of God enjoying the hope and the joy celebrating together like we do at different times to make good things ultimate and I could go on there's just so many things aren't there about our work, the, thing, the things God's gifted us to do with our hands in our lives. Jesus was a carpenter, and that was good. But it actually became the ultimate thing, because through it, he served God's purpose. He did what God wanted him to do. And whatever we are, whatever stage in life we are, whether it's retirement or whatever, our day, am I going to make my time today an ultimate thing? For the glory of God. Good things, ultimate things. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Just want to go on now, just as we close. Verse 5. God's now taking the stage to say something. And it's quite important. Because the way these people were living and the way justice is crying out, that people were living in a world where the creator was not living in his creation. The creator was not living in his creation. That came to idol worship. You know, ignore God, you ignore the creator. But if you take away the foundation, the building collapses. And I'm only using this this morning, and I will take every opportunity to do it. It's actually to, as a church, as a people, we need to voice over our creator God and his glory in creation. In Romans it says that they changed the glory. Ah. They change the glory. But you take out the creator out of his creation and the building collapses. Now listen, this is what it says here. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched, stretched them out. I think Job said he marked out the extent of of where things started and where they began, his planned purpose. He stretched them out, who spread out the earth. And all that comes out of it, and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. What about the child that's that's born as a, as a result of no choice, you know, and, and you, you know, with, with, with casual sex today, there are many, many children brought into this world because they were never thought of. It's just an accident. And I was reading an article yesterday, referred to one child born in a South American country, and his, he, his parents had named him Trash. His parents had named him Trash, and that's how he had grown up. 
in his life thinking that he was trash. Well, it says here that God breathes into people, into humans that are born. He breathes his spirit, and that's what it's saying there. The one who created the heavens and stretched them out, and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its individual people. So when the child's conceived, that was never intended, or the child that will grow up thinking it's worth nothing, just remember this. Thinking about John 1, we're talking about people born of God, those born not of a husband's will or of natural descent. And we may have a choice about when and how we have children in our lives. But there's something else happening here. At the moment that that child is conceived, God says, that's mine. (laughs) Really, he's mine. He breathes his spirit into... He doesn't do that with animals. He does that with child at conception who breathes his spirit into that child. That means there's a life here now that has a responsibility towards God. And God wants to call to himself to bless. But because God in his glory has given the will into each and every individual person, the choice is still there. But God's saying, that's now mine. The responsibility to me really is first. But my eye is on you. My eye is on you. He's mine. And so we have the creator here. And really in that context, it was take the creator out of the creation. Let's do our own thing. If you take the creator out of his creation, the building collapses. And so as a church, as people, we want to declare the glory of God. We want to declare the glory of God in creation as much as we can. To mention the creation as much as possible. Say, God created you. He loves you. You're actually his, his belongings. He belong, you belong to God. Now, you know, what are you going to do with that? You're his. Time's gone, I must finish. And so, as justice cries out for the earth, to recognise the creator in his creation. Let's do that. Let's recognise the creator. I'm not saying we don't. Don't get me wrong. But there are many churches who are taking the creator out of his creation. Many forms of belief that are taking the creator out of his creation. So it's so fundamental, so important to make sure that we really uphold all that God... And so... Glory. Just need something that's going to turn the hearts and the heads of people to God, just to see the glory of God. Like Isaiah says here, just look for a moment. Just stop and look for a moment. But my servant, just stop and look at Jesus. Look at his heart. Look at his way. My glory. 
I will give to another. Says God. Nor my praise to idols. That verse in the New Testament. He who offers praise glorifies me. We've had that opportunity this morning to praise God. But he who offers praise glorifies me. We hear so many words of praise, Helen and, and others coming around, what God's doing and what God's done for them. We're praising God. We're glorifying him. We do that in the church. We, we, you know? And Jesus said, it said of Jesus, he restored the glory that he didn't take away. That he didn't take away. Thank you, Father, so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for the opportunity to worship. Father, as we pursue what we have claimed to be a purpose statement for us as a church, help us to do it, we pray. Because we really want what we do, what we say, how we act and how we react to be for your glory, Lord Jesus. You're just so worth it for us to declare the truth and have a sure word, a sure word in every situation. For your glory, Lord Jesus, we just ask it now. Amen.